0: This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. David Rutledge with you for the second in our summer season of highlights from the past 12 months. Mass shootings in the USA have become a depressingly familiar phenomenon, but almost as familiar are the conspiracy theorists who come out of the woodwork after every mass shooting to insist that the tragedy was a false flag operation, that someone from the progressive, liberal side of politics actually orchestrated a massacre of innocent people in order to strengthen the case for gun control. Well, it just sounds really stupid. Conspiracy theories almost always sound really stupid. And that's why we've heard a lot of concerned commentators over the past few years saying that what's needed as an antidote to all the stupidity is more rational thinking, more philosophical training, better education. But my guest this week makes the observation that you don't have to be stupid to be a conspiracy theorist. In fact, many of them are highly intelligent and well-educated. And he has a very interesting analysis of the lure of conspiracy theory, of why people get into it in the first place.
1: In my paper, I give the example of the many intellectuals who supported the Nazis during World War II. The machinations of the Nazi regimes, uh, not least its conspiracy theories about Jews, appealed very strongly to philosophers, Uh, Martin Heidegger comes to mind, uh, as well as to jurists, scientists, and linguists. And it was the linguists who were responsible for translating these strange and complex conspiratorial tracts, like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which originally appeared in in Russian. So I don't think the problem here is that these people are not smart enough to recognize the reality. There's something else very different going on, and, and I'm suggesting that it has to do with the motivation that's behind aesthetic appreciation.
0: Charles Blatberg is Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Montreal. In late 2021, he published a paper in the journal The Philosophical Forum titled Antisemitism and the Aesthetic. I've put a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website. And if, like me, you've spent a lot of time wondering why on earth so many apparently sane people get sucked down these rabbit holes of paranoid nonsense, then it's a paper well worth reading. And today's program is a conversation well worth sticking around for.
1: My central claim when it comes to conspiracy theories are that they're not, at least first and foremost, they're not functionalist, uh, by which I mean that they're not primarily designed to meet some external end, whether political, psychological, economic, religious or or other. Rather, they're, they're all about enjoyment. And enjoyment comes from affirming things for their own sakes. Uh, rather than because of some interest we may have. When we do that, uh, we need to take a disinterested attitude towards whatever it is that we're affirming. And when we do that, we access what I like to call the aesthetic dimension of reality. And that's all about enjoyment. And there are essentially four ways of doing this uh, savoring beauty, obviously, but also playing for fun putting on shows or spectacles, and fantasizing. And I would say that all four are involved when we entertain conspiracy theories, or at least those that are plainly false, because obviously there are some conspiracy theories that are true. Uh, Watergate is a good example. But when it comes to the plainly false ones, that the earth is flat, say, or that Jews secretly run the world, These ones, I wouldn't say the problem with those who entertain them is that they suffer from a rationality deficit, which I guess is just a polite way of saying that they're stupid. Rather, it's that they are clearly intelligent people who are enjoying these theories. And in fact, sometimes the theories are so intricate and all-encompassing that you have to be capable of highly complex thought just to grasp them. And I'd go even further and and suggest that intellectuals who are very attracted by complexity are just the kinds of people who enjoy, first of all, theorizing, and second of all, theorizing about conspiracies. When you do that, it's very much like playing a puzzle-solving game. And, you know, by uncovering the plot, players pass tests of ingenuity, And in this way, they participate in one of the modes of the aesthetic, that one that I've identified as uh,
0: playing for fun. One thing that strikes me about a lot of conspiracy theorists is that they don't seem to be taking much pleasure in the game. It, it, it can't be much fun to walk around believing that the deep state is trying to control your mind with chemtrails or whatever it might be. And it doesn't look like they're having fun. They often seem driven by anger and, and fear. So it raises the question of what kind of pleasure, what kind of fun are they having?
1: Well, I think if you, if you closely examine that anger and fear, you'll see that these are aestheticized versions of these emotions. The anger is often that of the self-righteous, virtue-signaling, battler against evil. Uh, Someone who sees him or herself as playing a role in this fantastic morality play, which obviously is a kind of show, and, and that's another mode of the aesthetic. As for the fear, well, I again would claim that it's not the practical fear that comes from perceiving a genuine threat, Rather, it's something much more enjoyable, you know, like when you're sitting comfortably in a cinema and you're watching a good horror movie. In fact, conspiracy theorists also often enjoy the aestheticized fear that they instill in others. That's why they're like the villains in fairy tales or comic books who seem to be having a really great time because they're always gleefully cackling and rubbing their hands together. So the point is they're having a great deal of fun and that's why I I think rage and fear is not quite what's going on except for those forms of these emotions that you can actually enjoy because they've been aestheticized.
0: So where does that leave the question of belief? Because if I'm taking aesthetic pleasure in a game, I don't necessarily expect that the game has real-world applications or relevance or or real-world consequences. But conspiracy theorists seem to have very passionately held beliefs about things that they think are happening in the world, in which case it's not just a game to them? Or, or is, that, is that belief in some sense questionable to you?
1: Well, once again, I think we need to distinguish between serious practical beliefs or, or, or scientific beliefs and uh, those that have been aestheticized. And so what I'm suggesting is that conspiracy theorists, they don't believe In their theories in that serious sense uh, but rather they believe in them and you can't see me but i'm I'm putting little quotation marks around the word there uh, because this is an aestheticized epistemology which once again uh, is very enjoyable especially since they don't see how this belief takes place within this distinct dimension that i'm calling the aesthetic So if we distinguish between the aesthetic and other dimensions of reality, like the practical and the natural, well, the problem with the conspiracy theorists, or or really any other kind of aesthete, which are people who dedicate their lives to the modes of the aesthetic and the enjoyment that comes from them, they don't distinguish between uh, these dimensions as we do, normal people, in the sense that They don't distinguish between the the separate world of a game on the one hand or or a fantasy that's definitely fictional and the serious non-fictional world where you and I are right now having this discussion. And so because they blur the boundaries between these dimensions of reality, they themselves can't really distinguish between serious, genuine belief on the one hand and the kind of belief that you need uh, to imagine when you're playing a game or enjoying a a fictional story, whether it's a film or a novel or whatever. And since they're unaware of of that difference, we have to be careful to be aware of just that when we're dealing with them because you can very easily fail to see this and and then take them too seriously. And even though I'm arguing that they're aiming for for having fun and enjoyment, uh, that's precisely what I think makes them so dangerous. Uh, because they're not taking life seriously uh, in the way one should. and you know what uh, what can come from that, uh, especially in the case of some conspiracy theories that have been uh, very useful to fascists and other extreme political movements.
0: Yeah, we really see that too, that that aestheticization when when the whole thing just gets let off the leash. I mean, one of the things that, I just find so head spinning about looking at old footage of Nazi rallies and that sort of extreme aestheticization that the Nazis indulged in. It, it really has this sense of things just operating at a at a fever pitch, you know, it's all, almost like a sort of a hallucinogenic dream that everybody's in and it makes it it makes it all the more, all the more terrifying, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely, especially when Again, there isn't a, a, the kind of distinctions that's necessary that we make every day when we distinguish between enjoying a piece of fiction on the one hand and uh, taking politics, for example, uh, seriously on the other. Especially when it comes to politics, uh, that's extremely dangerous. Uh, there seems to be a connection between fascism and aesthetics. It's something that the German-Jewish uh, writer Walter Benjamin uh, underlined, and Part of it seems to involve the need to invent scapegoats for the fact that sometimes uh, life can be difficult, uh, things aren't going well, and uh, we need someone to blame. Even if this is all being done within uh, what is essentially a a kind of game, the danger is, of course, that it then leaks out of the game into uh, real life, and there are real victims from that.
0: What interests me about your work is that while so many observers of conspiracy theory call on sociology or psychology, perhaps, to explain what's going on, you turn to metaphysics, in particular the atomistic and the monistic character of aesthetic phenomena. Can you outline that for us?
1: Right. Well, essentially, it's because I I see this aesthetic dimension as different from both the the practical dimension and uh, the natural dimension, in that only the aesthetic is uh, both monistic as well as an an atomic whole. Now, by monistic, what I mean is that uh, it's cohesive. uh, It exhibits a oneness, uh, which is obviously what contrasts with pluralism, which implies fragmentation. Now, that the practical dimension is to a degree fragmented, is, I think, evident from the fact that we sometimes face irreconcilable moral dilemmas in our lives, the kinds from which we can't escape without doing something wrong and so dirtying our hands. As for the natural dimension, it's also fragmented to a degree. Most of it is obviously well described by the systematically unified laws of physics. However, physicists have also identified singularities in the universe, places where there are, there's infinite gravity And so the laws of physics break down. So you can think of uh, the universe just before the Big Bang, or uh, what's uh, apparently at the center of black holes. So here we have a degree of fragmentation, even in the natural world. But when it comes to the aesthetic dimension, well, it's unified, or at least we can imagine it in that way. And if we go back to Carl Philipp Moritz, uh, who is a, a German author who wrote the very first essay on the link between disinterestedness and aesthetics way back in 19, sorry, 1785, so well before uh, Kant and Schiller took up the idea, Moritz argues that an aesthetic phenomena is complete in itself. And I interpret that to mean uh, that there are no gaps in it. And so that's why I would say that it's unified and and so monistic as for the aesthetic and the the stuff inside it as atomic holes as atomist where the natural and the practical dimensions have blurry. And so holistic boundaries, I take inspiration from, uh, there's a poem by Rainer Maria Murilke on the ball, which leads me to conceive of the aesthetic as, like a ball, in that it and the stuff inside it is discrete and self-enclosed, that's why we can approach it by taking a a disinterested stance. And that's exactly what you need to do when you're playing with a ball. I mean, just look at the body language of, of a kitten when they play with a ball. Now, if we go back to conspiracy theories as aesthetic phenomena... Well, it's often been remarked that such theories have a self-sealing quality. This indicates that they're both self-enclosed, and so atomic holes, and they're also cohesive and so monistic. And that's why they're almost impossible to debunk, because any external countervailing evidence is immediately dismissed, along with any accusation that The theory is in any way self-contradictory, and so not a cohesive unity. So I think by recognizing these two metaphysical qualities, the the way in which the theory is an atomistic whole on the one hand and unified on the other, we once again identify uh, commonality with all other uh, aesthetic entities. And so once again, we see that uh, at the end of the day, we're dealing with something that's first and foremost about enjoyment and not about functional external ends.
0: You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is the Canadian political philosopher Charles Blatberg. As I mentioned earlier, he has a paper on the aesthetic appeal of conspiracy theorizing that I think is very persuasive and it's just a great read. You'll find a link on the Philosopher's Zone website. I'm interested in the question of political allegiance and why you think conspiracy theorists tend to cleave to the same rather narrow set of political ideologies. Because if you're right, and this tendency springs from an inclination to take aesthetic pleasure in game playing, then that's just a human characteristic. And if if we look at the USA, you know, we might expect to find that it's as common among Democrat voters as it is among Republican voters. But generally speaking, we don't find that. Why not, do you think?
1: Well, okay, I guess in general, there there is a tendency of those on the right uh, to be more vulnerable and and attracted by uh, conspiracy theories. But we also have to recognize that uh, those on the left can do so as well. Okay, on the right, we have, let's say in the United States, uh, conspiracy theories like the QAnon uh, theory, or now in the Republican Party, it's very popular to go along with the completely ridiculous claims of the former president. that he had the election stolen, the last election stolen from him. But on the left, I think we could point, for example, to the claims that I'm reading nowadays uh, regarding the incredible failures on the behalf of public health authorities to properly deal with the COVID pandemic. Uh, Many people point to that and argue that, oh, it must be the result of some neoliberal capitalist conspiracy, uh, when in fact, uh, it seems to me, we're what well, the real problem here is massive uh, incompetence verging on the criminal. And that's something that is often underestimated by people who are attracted to conspiracy theories, whether you're on the left or the right. And that is just how incompetent uh, we can be sometimes. Conspiracy theorists just seem often unable to recognize that oftentimes things don't work out very well, and what they're witnessing is not some elaborate, secret cabal or organized conspiracy, uh, but it's just simply pure incompetence. And uh, that's the most realistic explanation of what, in fact, is going on. Uh, It's not a lot of fun, though, to recognize that that's the case. And I think that there's even an escapism Uh, there, when people hope for a kind of perfect, uh, once again unified world, when the reality is much more uh, broken and fragmented.
0: I take your point, and yet what really fascinates me about this moment in our culture is is that if we look back to the 1960s, we see a, a familiar kind of anarchic inversion of dominant social values taking place, where the name of the game then as now, is provocation and outrage and trolling. And there's a strong aesthetic associated with that. But in the 1960s, it's the the hippies and the freaks trolling the conservatives, whereas today the ones who seem to be having all the fun identify as conservatives and the name of the game is owning the left with the progressives now the ones clutching their pearls. Do you see it that way? And if so, how do you account for that cultural switch?
1: Well, I don't actually think that today uh, those who are out to shock and provoke are conservatives uh, so much as political or or should I say anti-political actors who are far to the right of them. So people like white supremacists and other neo-fascists. And it seems to me that what they have in common with the hippies of the 60s is obviously not ideology, but marginality. Uh, Because it's always those who've find themselves outside of the establishment uh, that tend to enjoy provoking moralizers and playing the transgressive uh, clown or tricksters. So that's what it seems to me the what they have in common, uh, much less than political ideology.
0: Well, I'd like to turn to anti-Semitism as a particular branch of conspiracy theory. You've written about how the puzzle-solving aspect of conspiracy theorizing can often receive support from fantasy. What role does fantasy play in anti-Semitic imagining?
1: Well, there is this figure of the Jew. And once again, I'm I'm using quotation marks there because it's clearly not actual Jews uh, that are playing this role within the imagination of the anti-Semite, but it's this aesthetic entity. It's a figure it plays the role of what I call a, a substantive symbol, which is distinct from formal symbols, the kind that you find in, in mathematics or logic. The substantive symbol of the Jew uh, has both uh, certain trans-historical formal properties, but these are combined with evolving contents, Uh, And that's where you get these different myths and conspiracies such as that uh, Jews uh, enjoy killing babies and using their blood for religious rituals, or uh, that they're behind engineering immigration policy in order to increase the non-white population. All of that seems to me to be indicative of the fantasy that is underlying uh, a big part of conspiracy theorizing and that again is one of the major modes of the aesthetic. When you use your imagination not to capture something real when for example you are in a conversation and you're trying to be empathetic to your interlocutor uh, but rather you just let it run free Well, that's fantasy, and uh, that plays a major role uh, in the enjoyment of conspiracy theories. And the thing about anti-Semitism is that sooner or later, it always ends up taking the form of a conspiracy theory.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that there's a connection here between the aesthetic pleasure you're describing and the kind of pleasure that people take in narrative, you know, that being swept away by an exciting story, in, in this case, the the various accounts of Jewish villainy that we see being told and retold down the centuries. It's very much like a literary encounter, isn't it? That that pleasure that, that we all take in in hearing a very conventional story told very conventionally with all the familiar elements in place.
1: Yes. And, and, and once again, these stories are, are populated by this figure of the Jew, who is also someone that the anti-Semite savors, uh, savoring being one of the other modes of the aesthetic, uh, the appreciation of beauty or even ugliness. So you can think of how anti-Semites savour the exaggerated hooked noses, dark beady eyes and drooping eyelids of the ugly, swarthy, hairy Jew, uh, depicted in many relished caricatures and cartoons. or You can think of the seductive allure of la belle juive, a figure either sinful or noble. Uh, Anti-Semites simply eat this stuff up because they enjoy it immensely. And so once again, we have fantasy playing a role in making conspiracy theories a source of aesthetic pleasure.
0: So... If we go back then to our earlier discussion of atomism and monism, that, that metaphysical framework that undergirds conspiracy theorizing, how does that framework lead some people to focus on Jews in particular as the primary object of suspicion?
1: Well, specifically when it comes to monism, I, I, I don't think the the muriology, the, the, the science of parts and wholes, and so atomism versus holism plays a, a major role here, but the monism, pluralism... Uh, dichotomy does. And that's because, historically, uh, Jews uh, have been associated with non-monistic ways of seeing the world. That's true both of religious Jews and secular Jews. So if you look at religious Jews such in philosophy such as Hannah Arendt, or Emmanuel Levinas, Judith Butler, or myself for that matter, you have the idea that it's God who is one as Moses purportedly declared. And the implication here is that since the world must be intrinsically different from its creator, uh, then the world must be, if not pluralist, uh, then at least uh, disunified. As for secular Jews, while there's not a few of them, at least amongst the leading intellectuals, that have been monists, so you can think of uh, Spinoza to Marx, Freud, and Einstein, many others have been otherwise from Isaiah Berlin to Jacques Derrida, Judith Klar, and Michael Walzer. Or you can even look to Yiddish, uh, secular Yiddish culture. I don't know if you uh, like the uh, show Curb Your Enthusiasm, created by uh, Larry <laughs> David.
0: I like it very much, yeah.
1: It's, I mean, the character he plays, a fictionalized version of himself, is a classic within uh, secular Yiddish culture. It's known as the Shlemiel is essentially a bungler who's always either breaking things or stumbling on already broken ones in ways that make the situation worse. Well, much of the humor of the show revolves around conflicts over minutiae in daily social life in which Larry takes one side and some unfortunate friend or acquaintance or passerby takes the other. And what happens, the outcome here, is that you highlight that there are these small and seemingly irreconcilable gaps in the everyday. And in doing so, Curb Your Enthusiasm sends the message. Uh, It's a lot of fun, but there's also something serious uh, being said. And the message is that the world is broken. And that, once again, is a a theme that runs through uh, much uh, Jewish uh, thought. And so if you're a monist, whether because you subscribe to the doctrine explicitly, because you're a philosopher, or just because you tend to approach uh, the world that way without even ever ever having heard of the philosophy, if you think that the way things are meant to be is they're all supposed to fit together in a unified oneness, well, here's this culture within the West uh, that historically has stood for disunity uh, rather than unity. And so there you go. That's why those who are monists and are vulnerable to conspiracy theories tend to focus on the Jew as uh, their targets.
0: Is this what Heidegger was getting at when he wrote that Jewry is the principle of destruction? He, he, he probably wouldn't have, have enjoyed Kirby's enthusiasm, but he would, have, he would have appreciated the worldview. I think
1: so. I think Heidegger uh, is another uh, monist philosopher he himself conceives of being as providing the horizon uh, for Dasein, for individual beings in the world, and uh, what is a horizon if not a a circular boundary in which what's inside is conceived as free of gaps and and so unified. And so even though Plato, uh, among others, were among Heidegger's chief philosophical enemies, Uh, One thing he shared with them is this belief in monism, which after all has been dominant in Western philosophy, whereas the Jew uh, for Heidegger uh, stood for destruction because he was a pluralist. And uh, that's why antisemitism plays such an important role in Heidegger's thought. Obviously, it's only since the publication relatively recent of his Black uh, Notebooks that we see just how far he went with this uh, to, to a genocidal extent, actually. but it's important that we, we recognize that it's not an ordinary anti-Semitism, but a, but a fundamentally metaphysical kind in which, once again, we have a monist for whom pluralism, difference and fragmentation is seen as a threat and so needs to be eliminated. And that's why Heidegger claimed that Judaism is a principle of destruction and so needs to be literally uh, wiped out.
0: You mentioned that there have been many Jewish thinkers who have been monists, and I'm thinking also of the kind of activity that we see in things like Talmudic biblical interpretation and rabbinic commentary on the Torah in some forms of Kabbalistic hermeneutics where interpretation of the sacred text is based on the understanding that there is nothing in that text that is contingent or accidental. Everything comes from God, So the meanings of the words, but also the numerical values of the letters, even the shapes of the letters, it all has divine significance and it's all uh, sort of contained within the unity of God. And it seems like you have... And Well, not only an atomistic and a monistic metaphysics there, but you even have something that looks weirdly analogous to conspiracy theorizing, right? Everything's significant. Everything adds up to a mind-blowing truth if you know how to read it properly. What do you make of that connection?
1: Well, I read uh, these Jewish traditions very differently. Um, I mean, Yes, it's true. There's a, a plethora of meaning there, uh, both in rabbinic Judaism and Kabbalah. But I wouldn't say that that meaning fills in all the gaps when it comes to the conception of the world. And so it goes against the idea that the world is to some degree broken and so in need of repair. With the Talmud, the you know, the central texts of rabbinic Judaism, these volumes contain you know, innumerable inconclusive debates between rabbis and that's why uh, Aiden Steinsaltz, uh, one of the greatest Talmudicists of the previous century, describes the Talmud as essentially a collection of paradoxes. As for Jewish mysticism, well, the great 16th century Kabbalist Isaac Luria had a cosmogony, a, a story of the origin of the universe, uh, that's known as the breaking of the vessels. And the idea here is that when God created the world, rays of light, emanated from him or her. And while these were supposed to be contained within vessels, they ended up overflowing and shattered into fragments. And so that's why I think that at the end of the day, there's a recognition of, of gaps and fragmentation in both of these major Jewish traditions. And these gaps are utterly incompatible with especially the monistic philosophical principle known as the principle of sufficient reason. So according to this principle, everything must have a reason, cause, or a ground. And that's why there's an important difference that needs to be emphasized between the two main sources of Western civilization. So on the one hand, there's that of Athens, by which I mean to refer to Greek theoretical philosophy and monisms such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, all of which more or less can be said to have adopted the principle of sufficient reason. Whereas on the other hand, there's the spirit of Jerusalem, uh, which again I'm claiming is not at all uh, monistic. And so we have a very different view that's much more open uh, to brokenness and that brings with it the need to repair the world. There's, In fact, in In uh, Kabbalah, there is an important maxim uh, where it's the moral obligation of Jews to contribute to the repair of the world, tikkun olam uh,
0: in Hebrew. Well, I think your analysis of conspiracy theorizing and of anti-Semitism is is just fascinating. But does it also provide tools or strategies that could help us to to combat anti-Semitism, to push back against it, or to deal effectively with conspiracy theorists?
1: Well, I think it does. I I think that if we recognize that the plainly false conspiracy theories are essentially aesthetic rather than practical, then this points to very particular ways of combating them. In my work in political philosophy, I've tried to emphasize a dialogical approach, one that would give conversation a, a greater role in conflict resolution. And so in politics, however, dialogue is not always appropriate. And it seems to me that when it comes to conspiracy theorists, uh, dialogue is not only useless, but it can sometimes even be harmful, since it can confer practical legitimacy on the theorist. Now, normally, the attempt to coax aesthetes out of the aesthetic is a mugs game. Uh, when people have fallen for a myth, uh, facts usually won't convince them to abandon it. So that's why instead of earnest dialogue, which is fundamentally serious because practical, I think we need to confront anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists on their own terrain, so to speak. And this means going into the aesthetic, which is where they are. So we need, for example, to try and undermine the substantive symbols that conspiracy theorists rely on, such as the figure of the Jew in the case of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And this can be done uh, by, for example, creating and supporting artworks that contest these symbols, as well as the myths that rely on them. Or another option would be to use humor, which is a very significant aesthetic weapon, uh, because after all, what could be more fitting than uh, mocking and so having fun at a conspiracy theorist's expense? Rather than trying to to reason with the anti-Semite and convince them that maybe there's something not quite working with the theory, uh, we frankly uh, need to fight them. Uh, and one of the tools of that, uh, especially for someone who is already inhabiting the aesthetic, is uh, mocking. Uh, so I'm actually serious about the humor because I think it can be a, an effective way of ruining their fun and making the conspiracy theory that much less attractive to them.
0: How much value do you see in political opposition to monism, given that there's so much nationalism bound up in conspiracy theorizing, or at least in, in the communities that, that give themselves over to this? Is there something to be gained by you know pushing for multinational models of the state over the nation-state model, that kind of thing?
1: Absolutely. Uh, as a Canadian, uh, we still have a ways to go, but we have made a fair bit of progress on recognizing that our country is is multinational. It's not a one nation, one state. We have the majority nation of English Canadians, of, of which I'm a part of, uh, but there's also uh, French-speaking Québécois, and uh, the First Nations are indigenous uh, nations. It seems to me that one of the f- problems or obstacles to recognizing multinational reality of a country like Canada, or Australia as well, or the United States, uh, even Britain, although they've also made a a great deal of progress, is precisely uh, the influence of monism, uh, this time on political thought. Yes, the the idea of the nation-state was born uh, centuries ago with the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, but I think there's a very good reason why uh, it's believed that every nation deserves its own uh, separate state. And that is, uh, once again, a monistic belief uh, that has caused an incredible amount of damage, and worse, in in the world. Uh, The fact is, there are, uh, according to some anthropologists, a few thousand nations, national communities, and as we know, uh, in the United nations, there's what, 194 uh, states right now, uh, recognized. There's no way that every nation can have a state. It's a, it's a recipe for bloodshed. And so it's extremely important that we make room for multinationalism uh, throughout the world. And uh, once again, one way of, of doing that is combating uh, the influence of monism on political thought
0: charles blatberg professor of political philosophy at the university of montreal and he's the author of anti-semitism and the aesthetic that's a wonderful paper that's been published in the journal the philosophical forum and i've put a link to it on the philosopher's Zone website as always you can follow us and find all of our past programs via the abc listen app thanks for your company this week and i hope you can join me next time i'm david rutledge bye for now